Some technical challenges with the wireless mic, and uh, we'll see if we can get that working in a few minutes. Jerry may actually come up and interrupt me just to prepare you. Um, that's all right. Uh, that's better than me holding this the whole time. So um, if you'll turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8, and let's give attention to God's holy word together. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that no one here who is genuinely born again would suffer condemnation as we have read through these verses. I do pray that anyone who is not truly born again may have their eyes opened, respond to you in faith, and be made new. I pray that all of us may be sobered by these verses, but may we also be joyful and grateful for your great mercy and grace. Even though these are hard words, I pray for your grace to speak and for you to enable us all to hear from you and to not be dull of hearing. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our great High Priest, we pray. Amen. The author of Hebrews... For those of you who are visiting for the first time, this is not a passage we selected for this morning for child dedications. It is, however, the next in the series as we have been going through the book of Hebrews. We try to to preach through books of the Bible at a time. It is the next chapter in Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, he has all along been strategically addressing a church that's full of people who have been tempted to turn their back. These people are tempted to turn their back on their Faith, to turn back to old habits, to turn back to a more comfortable lifestyle. Maybe you can identify you've been tempted in some of those ways as well. The author of Hebrews has been alternately, he's been giving them proofs about why they should trust in Jesus. And then he intersperses those proofs with warnings. And then he encourages after the warnings to press on to take heart, that they really can have faith and hold fast to their confidence. And we've been seeing this pattern throughout the book of Hebrews so far. And then in chapter 5, we see that we can have confidence in Jesus as our great high priest. And Jesus really is our great high priest. And then he goes on to explain that he's a high priest of a different order, in the order of Melchizedek. And and then he we heard last week in church that it's difficult to understand because the Hebrews, the people in this book, the people of the church... They become dull of hearing and not diligently and actively applying what they know and instead settling for what they already knew. And so this settling for the things that 
they learned at first and is settling for the things that we've learned at first as a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you've learned things to begin with. It's not okay just to settle there and become complacent. So the author, he's warning the church, and look down in your Bibles. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He says, effectively, they're not to stay in the same place. And it's really easy to do that, though. Isn't it easy as a Christian to, to stay in the same place? It's easy to become stagnant. It's easy to not be pursuing the things of the Lord with passion. Maybe you find yourself there this morning. Maybe you find yourself there in the past. It's easy to become complacent. It's easy to, to drift. And the author of Hebrews, he's not wanting them. He's not wanting us. The, the Lord is not wanting us to stay in the same place. He's saying, take these, these basic truths about Jesus and the Christian faith and build upon them. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to sing children's songs. I'm sure a lot of you did as well. And I remember singing this song, Yes, Jesus loves me. You remember that song? Or, yeah, there you go. Excellent. I got the next verse. Or, where Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Excellent. Or, I've got peace like a river. Anybody know that song too? Excellent. <laughs> or the, the really profound deep and wide, deep and wide. Or then the, uh, the, the, the extremely, um, profound one. And it was Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I, the songs, most of those songs contain some good basic Truths, good basic Bible instruction. I'm not sure what the Zacchaeus song was, was wanting to teach us. It was teaching that God loves little people, which he does. But it's, it's not all we should learn from the story of Zacchaeus. You see, um, if we stayed at that fundamental, that really basic, that basic level of truth and didn't press on towards maturity, something would be wrong. We're not meant to stay at those foundational truths alone. Now, it doesn't mean we leave them behind. What it means instead, and it's really the first point that the author is trying to bring to us, is that foundations are meant to be built on. Foundations are meant to be built on. They're not to lay the same foundations again and again. You can't stay at that same childlike level of understanding of who Zacchaeus was and why was it important that Jesus went to his house. We need to build on those foundations. And he talks of some of these more foundational truths that all Christians are called to know. And look down in verse 2. He speaks of these foundational truths of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. They, they were all ready to understand. And he assumed they understood that these the ceremonial washings of the old covenant, they could never really cleanse them. They needed Jesus to truly cleanse them from their sins. And, and then they were all expected to have been baptized into water as believers as an outward sign of the of the inward washing of Jesus Christ. They weren't to neglect that, but they were to build on these foundations, is what he's saying. Don't lay again the same foundations. Let's let's leave that where it is, and let's build on that. Let's build our houses. Let's build on the good, solid foundations we've already received. And so he goes on to say that the church, you already know about laying on of hands. This morning we laid hands on um, the parents as they were praying over their children. Um, that's a very biblical practice, expecting God to act, expecting God to bless. We lay hands on people expecting God to heal them as well, and we're told that in Scripture. Lay hands on people for the appointment of tasks to an office or at times for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't leave those things behind, but leave them where they are and build on those foundations. He assumes we don't need to come back to what should be ongoing basic practices of every believer everywhere. 
It's assumed the church should already have knowledge about the fact that one day all of us will be resurrected from the dead. So he talks about that. There will be an eternal judgment to face. These aren't unimportant things, but they are foundational things that we're supposed to build on. You see, my, my parents, they live in a small suburb of Athens, Georgia, not too far, about two and a half hours from here. And remember the first time we went down, they were driving around the area. They just moved there a few years ago. And because of the economy and the downturn, there's a neighborhood not too far from there. And this, there's one thing interesting about this neighborhood. It has all the streets in place, the curbs, the gutters, the lights. Everything is all there in the neighborhood, a beautiful neighborhood. The only problem is it's just full of foundations. And, and, and it's odd. You, you go around the neighborhood and you look and you see there's, there's pipes and there's electricity running and, 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 and there's plumbing for a non-existent bathroom and, and the walls are there for the foundations, but there's no homes. And, and you're, it makes you kind of sad and think, well, this, this is not right. This is what a waste. What a waste that they weren't able to keep building. And then, and then the reality is now it's been a few years since my parents moved there and, and they said, well, these foundations, they've started to crumble because they've been exposed. They've been exposed to the weather. They've not been built upon. And so they're starting to crumble. And so you really can't use those foundations anymore. It was all, all for naught. It was all a waste because these houses were never built on the foundations. Just a bunch of deteriorating foundations exposed and starting to crumble. You see, foundations are meant to be built upon. We all know that. It seems wrong to you to go and see a place that they started building and never finished. Everybody knows it isn't good and right to lay a foundation and not build on it. The problem is, sometimes we ignore that fact when it comes to the Christian life. It's good to have a strong and solid and sturdy foundation. We must have a strong, solid foundation. We must rely on it continually. But you're meant to build on it. And that's the point of these passages here. In the first three verses... He's saying that just learning the truths about Christianity, it's not enough. It's intended for God's house to be built on these foundational truths. You remember back in Hebrews 3.6, we used the same kind of language in Hebrews 3.6. It says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting in our hope, we're meant to be his house. But we must, must hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then in verse 3, he moves on and he says, look down with me, and this we will do, we'll build, we'll move on to maturity. This we will do, we'll move on to maturity if God permits. It's not another way of saying, I, I hope so, or I, 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 maybe this will occur. What he's saying is that maturity is a gift. And that's the second point this morning, is that maturity is a gift. It's a gift from God. We, we can move on to maturity if God permits. What that should do is sober us that if the Lord brings conviction, if he brings a passage of scripture to you, we're meant to respond to it because it's a gift from God. And if he's bringing conviction, that means he's permitting you to respond. He's enabling you. He's allowing you to respond. And we shouldn't take that for granted because it may not always be the case. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, he talks about correcting. Paul talks about correcting his opponents with gentleness. That God may perhaps, listen to that language, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil. You see, repentance cannot be taken for granted. Growth and maturity in God cannot be taken for granted. Because you have a foundation, you can't take for granted that, that you're going to be able to build forever. 
You see, there's a season and a time, just like the, the builder missed that time and that season for building, and they can't go back and build on those foundations now. It's too late. And, and you can't assume that when you experience the conviction of God and when you experience the Lord bringing something to you, you can't assume that that's going to come again. You have to respond to it, not be dull of hearing, and say, Lord, I want to respond to you because, God, thank you that you're permitting me. Maybe for those of you who have not yet repented of your sins and and turned to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, maybe you haven't looked to Him for life, don't think. Don't think that you're always going to have an opportunity. Don't think you can wait until later. If you're a young adult, don't think you'll wait until after you grow up, until after you've sown your wild oats and you've gone to college and you've done the, the party life. Don't think you can wait. You may not be able to. Don't assume you're going to repent later. Conviction is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Growth is a gift. And God is the one who grants, if God permits. God's the one who grants understanding. And and it's our prayer that God would continue to mercifully grant His understanding to us. And, And our prayer is that He would enable us to change, knowing that He desires to give us good gifts. And if God does permit, if you've seen the truth this morning... Maybe you're here and you've seen the truth. You've tasted the things of God. Here's the encouragement. Don't turn away. God is permitting you. God's enabling you to respond this morning. And here's why. Look down at verse 4 and 5. It says, For it is impossible, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened once, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to, go, to come. What the author is doing here is he's, he's telling the church to, to beware of falling away. Beware of falling away. It's, it's really the third and it's the largest point that we're going to be looking at today. It's beware of falling away. The author is, in effect, he's, he's waving his arms. You ever done that? You drove him down the road and you see somebody on the side of the road and he's waving his arms, trying to get his attention trying to get your attention and, and trying to get you to see, trying to get you to be aware of some danger. The author here, he's, it's like he's putting up big flashing lights. He's putting up warning signs to the readers to beware. There's a path you're headed on where there's no bridge and you're going to be heading straight off a cliff, off the cliff of unbelief. And, and once you go there, you're going to fall away. So beware of falling away. You know, warning signs at the edge of a cliff, they're... They're intended to keep you from going there. And, and the people who put those warning signs there, they assume, they hope, they believe with confidence that you're going to be wise and heed those warning signs. And we used to live in the Vancouver, B.C. area, and there was lots of cliffs there. And we used to go to a place where there was a suspension bridge, and there was about a 200, 300-foot drop-off. And there was nothing to bar you from falling. No, un- unlike in the U.S. where we're very... Lawsuit happy. There was no, there was no fence there, no gate. But there was a sign, beware of the cliff. You know, I don't think they had a lot of accidents though. Because they assumed that people would listen to the wisdom of beware, don't fall. And they had a picture of a person falling over the cliff with a big X through it. <laughs> it was very graphic. <laughs> it's, And then he says that it's impossible. Beware. Why? Because it's impossible. And he uses that same word. He uses that word four times in the book of Hebrews. And in each time, is a really deep thing. It means the same thing. It's not possible. It's it's not 
possible, no way possible at all. It's like in, in fairy tales when a prince is turned into a frog and then back into a prince again. That's not possible. That's an impossibility. What he's saying is it's there's no way possible, no matter what fairy tales say. It's impossible for those who've heard the good news and believed it's true, who've been around the people of God, who've tasted of the blessings of God, who've witnessed the gifts of the Spirit, somebody who's participated in these things to some degree and tasted them and even responded to these things. For all appearances, they seem to be a believer. They've made a profession of faith. And he's saying, if these people, if they turn away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. It's been said that these verses are perhaps, and I think I would definitely agree, the most difficult verses in the New Testament. These are the most challenging, some of the hardest verses in the entire Bible. Whether or not you believe that to be the case, I think the first readers of Hebrews and all of us would admit that these are indeed some hard words to hear. These are words that require some chewing on. This is definitely solid food, as the author of Hebrews would, would have referred to. These are some of the most potentially frightening verses as well. I remember, still remember, where I was when I first read these verses. I was sitting on the side of my bed. I was probably six or seven years old. And I read these verses. I had made a profession of faith when I was like a year earlier. And I was devouring the Bible, devouring the New Testament. Everything was going really well until I got to these verses and it freaked me out. It was scary. Um, I remember, I remember thinking, could I fall away? Will, will I be worthless and cursed? Is my destiny be burned? And unfortunately, I'd heard a lot of bad theology in the seventies when I grew up as a, as a kid. I watched a terrible movie about it and it affected me even worse. You ever seen a bad movie? It was called The Thief in the Night. It's, it's not a movie I'd endorse. It's, I remember being so scared that one day I got off the school bus and the school bus, for some reason, we got released early that day. My mom didn't know it and she was a teacher and she normally would make it home before me. And, but for some reason it dropped me off before my mom got home and nobody was there. I couldn't get in the house. The doors were locked and I thought, Oh my Lord, I've been left behind. <laughs> and, and I, it was, it's funny now. It was not funny then. <laughs> it, it's, it's comical because I had an immature understanding. I didn't have a mature understanding of what scripture was saying. It's a hard word to understand and I didn't understand it well. I, I hid behind the bushes waiting for probably half an hour, just terrified. And that half an hour, it felt like days, um, for my mom to come home and everything was okay after that. She had not been taken and everything was good. And, um, you may not have that kind of irrational fear that comes with um, an unsound understanding of this passage. But you may. You may have, when you hear these words, you may have a fear that is unwarranted. Or you, you might be a believer, an unbeliever, and, and have a very warranted fear. These are difficult Verses. These are sobering verses. If you've been a Christian for a while and you, you come on these verses, they're sobering. Maybe you might even wonder, is this still me today? And no matter how you look at it, these verses are very difficult. And there's some reasons why these verses are difficult. Let me give you three reasons why these are difficult verses. The first is that 
is difficult because there's been many different interpretations of the same passage taught throughout Christian history. There's been, there's been several different ways that this passage has been taught throughout Christian history. And there's been three really primary ways throughout the years that people have viewed these verses. The first way that you could read these verses, although I believe inaccurately, would be to say that these verses are speaking of true believers. And that it's possible to be a true Christian and lose your salvation. But the problem with that is then the rest of the Bible wouldn't make any sense. And you see, we believe that that God is the one who's written all of Scripture. In no place does Scripture contradict itself, even if it's hard to understand. And so when we have difficult Scriptures, we have to go to other Scriptures and say, how does this passage interpreted by other passages? And we have, fortunately, very many passages that help us with that. In John 10, 27, Jesus is very clear. He says, if you are truly one of his sheep... There is no way that you can ever perish or fall away. In John 10, 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And it doesn't end there, because that wouldn't make sense this passage yet, but he says, I give them eternal life. We don't give eternal life to ourselves. It's a gift from God. And here he says, they will never perish. When Jesus says never, he means never. And here's the other good news. No one who's truly been born again, who's truly a sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not only will a true believer never fall away and never perish because Jesus is holding the true believer, and you're not stronger than Jesus, the great high priest, and by the way, you're not stronger than the almighty creator, you can't snatch yourself if you are truly a believer. In 1 Peter 1.3, we learn of the sure hope that we have if we've been born again. And in 1 Peter 1.3, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We didn't make ourselves born to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable cannot die, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by, doesn't say our power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And there's many other scriptures that we could go to this morning as well, but for time's sake, we won't. They show that those who have been truly made alive in Christ will never go astray. Those who have been truly made alive in Christ will never go astray. The second way that these verses have also been explained is, is that it's a hypothetical situation, that it's not really possible for people to experience this and then fall away. But it's a hypothetical thing where he warns them, and because he warns them, it won't happen. Well, the problem with that is if it was only a hypothetical warning. In Matthew 7, Jesus would never have warned us. Because in Matthew 7.22, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Sound familiar? Taste of the gifts of the Spirit. Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. These people who have experienced the power of God. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And there's other verses as well to support the fact that it cannot be a hypothetical warning that we have here in Hebrews. It's a very real warning. 
It's not meant to cause true believers to doubt. But it is meant to cause us to find out, are we really true believers? Are we sure? Is our calling and is our election sure? The third way of of viewing these verses, I believe, is biblically sound. and It's a warning, it's a danger to those who become dull of hearing. It's a danger that there's a danger of falling away and that they could become apostate. And this, this warning sign, he's flashing before us. It's meant to get our attention. It's meant to stand out. And he's saying, I want you to not have this happen to you. You have a say. If this is not, if you've not, if you're not yet apostate, well, if you're apostate, you probably wouldn't be reading these verses. But if you've, if you've not rejected the Lord, there is hope. There's a chance to turn. And it's possible though, at the same time, what he's warning us of, it's possible that you can seem like you're a true Christian. You walk the aisle. You made a profession of faith. And yet it's still possible to have people who appear to be genuine Christians to turn their backs on Jesus, to no longer believe the gospel, and in fact, mock Jesus and be ashamed they ever believed at all. And by doing so, prove that they never were born again. These are sobering verses, aren't they? The second reason these are very difficult verses is that some of these phrases are just hard to understand, aren't they? What does he mean when he says, those who've been enlightened? That sounds like They've been believers. Well, it means that they've seen the light. That The word is just, they've seen the light of the good news. They, they've seen a light dawn. They've received the knowledge of the truth. They have a basic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may even be people who understand it to the, to the extent that they've made a profession of faith. And maybe even been baptized. So what does it mean when they say that one can taste the heavenly gift? That's a hard phrase to understand as well, isn't it? What does it mean to taste the heavenly gift? Or when it says that you can taste the goodness of God? Wait a minute, you can be enlightened, taste the heavenly gift, taste the goodness of God, and and not be a Christian? How can you taste those things? Well, it means you taste something without eating all of it. I I like sushi. And uh, I like eating all of it normally. But, you know, at, at one time, I, I went to a Japanese restaurant, and I, I saw a, a live sea urchin, and it was still moving. And, and I, I tasted it. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it, and I left it there, and I let, let my friend eat it. it <laughs> I didn't want to eat something that recoiled from my spoon. I, <laughs> it, it was not good. I tasted it. I didn't find it beneficial. I didn't eat all of it. I didn't consume it. I do eat, I, I love a whole plate of raw salmon. Give me that any day. That's, that's wonderful stuff. But you, you, you might have just tasted those things and not enjoyed it. Never really fully eaten a plate of raw fish. And you don't know what you're missing, by the way. Or maybe you do know what you're missing. It's just my problem. But um, you can taste something. The point of it is that you can taste something without fully consuming it. You can experience it, but not let it be a part of you. So in some way, this is speaking of people who have, who have tasted the gift of salvation. They understand it. They've, they grasp it. They may even agree with it, just like the demons agree who Jesus is. They know the truth. But without fully consuming it, 
and letting it be a part of you. And that's, by the way, a picture of, that's why we have communion. That's meant to be a picture for us of, of taking and eating of God, of, of consuming his, his good news entirely, letting, letting his righteousness and his atonement be a part of who we are, letting that be our life. And he talks about sharing in the Holy Spirit. What can that mean? What does he mean when he says sharing in the Holy Spirit? I thought the Holy Spirit only came to believers. Well, it can mean that one can be a part of a church or a group of Christians where they've shared the benefits of the Holy Spirit. They've shared of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They've benefited from the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the body. Maybe they've heard words from the Lord for them. Maybe they've been prayed over. Maybe they've been healed. Maybe God has blessed them with miraculous works in their own life as people have prayed for them. They've shared, but they've not fully responded. They've not given all to follow Christ. They've not taken up the cross to follow Him. The other reason this is a difficult passage, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow. We might grasp the original meaning of the text, and maybe already you're grasping the original meaning of the text, and you understand its implications, but it's a hard idea for us to face the truth of it. You see, it's, it's hard to swallow that making a public profession, being baptized, is not enough. There has to be fruits that last. And you, you can't say, here's why it's hard to swallow. You can't say, I was saved when I was six, I walked the aisle, I made a public profession, and I was baptized. That's not enough. There must be fruit that lasts. So many in our culture are, are depending on relying on a simplistic grasp of the gospel, but they've never truly responded. Yeah, they've responded outwardly. They seem to be Christians. They seem to be professing, yet there's no evident change in their lives. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, "There's what evident change has there been in my life? Do I have desires, hunger for the things of God? Do I love His Word? Do I love His people? Because at some basic level, there should be a desire for God, a desire for His Word, a desire to be around His people, a desire to grow. There should at some measure be conviction. You should also be hearing some encouragement from God as you read Scripture. And it's hard to swallow the implications of this passage at times. And lastly, the, the passage, it makes us confront where we are. As you're sitting there, as, as I'm reading through this, as I'm thinking through this passage, I'm confronting where I'm at. Where am I? Now, we're not to be morbidly introspective, but we are meant to examine ourselves. That's why this verse is here. It's meant for all Christians, but it's uncomfortable. We're meant to do some self-examination in the light of this passage. And, and he's telling us you can't get comfortable if you're dull of hearing because that leads to hardness of heart. And that's dangerous because it can lead to falling away. And we don't want you to go there. And so in verse 6, he talks about the results of falling away. And our fourth point this morning is that falling away is fatal. Falling away is fatal. It's not just dangerous, it's fatal. You see, if you pass by those warning signs and you run off the cliff, if I ran off the cliff at Lynn Canyon, it would be fatal. I would surely drop. There would be nothing to stop me. There'd be no way to stop me once I had gone. Verse 6 explains why this falling away is fatal. Look down in your Bible. It says, If they then fall away since 
They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. He's saying why it's fatal is because it's a completely willful nosedive off the cliff. This isn't just sin. This is I am, I don't believe this, I don't believe this stuff anymore. It's turning away in disobedience, turning away in faithlessness. The kind of falling here is turning away to the point that somebody mocks Jesus and puts him to open shame again and says, Jesus was not who he said he was. His death wasn't necessary and I don't believe it. That's why this kind of falling away is fatal. And what he's saying is that there is a path that you can get on if you're dull of heart, if you're dull of hearing, and you don't pay attention and you're not responding, it can lead to further unbelief. Guard against that. Make sure you're not on that path because that path is fatal. He wants them to avoid at all costs the danger. He doesn't want them to forget that there's a final end for all those who turn away from Jesus. The New Testament, it gives us a really chilling example. Perhaps the most chilling example of someone who had believed and followed Jesus. This man, he, he seemingly turned from his own way to follow Jesus when Jesus called him personally. This man seemed to have faith in Jesus. He was trusted by Jesus to some degree and all of Jesus' followers trusted him and believed he was one of them. He must have evidenced some kind of signs that he was truly among them. He was enlightened. He saw the miraculous workings and all the miracles of Jesus firsthand. He tasted the heavenly gift. He heard God's word and he tasted it. He shared in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He tasted the goodness of God and Experience the powers of who Jesus really is. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. This chilling example is, is Judas Iscariot. You see, he was one of Jesus' closest followers. He seemed to be amongst them. Had the other eleven thought that he was not amongst them, they wouldn't have put up with that. He had all the appearances He betrayed Jesus because we know that he turned to unbelief. He became hard in his heart. He became bitter. He fell away. And his end was to be cursed. In fact, Jesus said it would have been better if he had never been born. His destiny was to be burned. There's a danger to falling away. Falling away is fatal and it's possible even for those who are seemingly closest to Jesus. These are hard words. They aren't easy words. Falling away like this, the author is saying, is it's crucifying the Son of God again. Because it's saying that we don't really need Jesus. That you don't really need what His death and resurrection have given you. You don't need His righteousness. You're good enough on your own. It's saying that you... you you want what the world offers instead, and it's better than all the blessings you've received, saying the fact that Jesus died needlessly and that his death was pointless. It holds him up to public shame, to contempt. And if someone who has once known and experienced the things of God willfully turns away like this, and by the way, if you're wondering if you're apostate or not, 
This is a willing turning away. If someone has once experienced the things of God and willfully turns away like this and rejects the Son of God, it's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. It's too late. They've taken a nosedive off the cliff and there's no turning back. And then verse 7 explains two kinds of responses that somebody can have to this warning. You can have two kinds of responses to the warning that you're hearing this morning. You can have two kinds of responses to this passage and he gives a very vivid agricultural illustration. He says in verse 7, look down your Bibles with me or up on the screen. It says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. So a land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. It's the land that produces a crop that receives the blessing from God. What he's saying is whether we respond and bear fruit is how we can know. It's how we can know our belief is real because belief bears lasting fruit. That's our fifth and final point. Belief bears lasting fruit. The author here is saying that one can be sure they've not fallen away if they're bearing fruit and producing a crop. He's not saying how big your crop is. Maybe you have a very meager crop. Maybe you just have some sprouts happening. I can feel like that at times in my own life. Like I have a very weak and feeble crop happening. Lord, I don't feel like I'm bearing fruit, but Lord, thank you for the small amount of fruit I do see. Thank you that I love your word. I want to repent. I want to be more like you. Thank you that you help me love my wife, love my children. Even if the fruit is meager, it's evidence that they're fertile soil. And there's this analogy. It should, it should sound familiar to you. If you've read your Bible, if you've read Matthew, it should sound familiar. And in, in, in Mark, Mark 4.14, he, he tells of the parable of the sower as well. He says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown to him. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They taste the word. They spring up. And it says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. So they're appearing to be believers. They're enduring for a while. And then it says, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. And those they are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things. They're subtly, slowly, Caring more about the things of the world, caring more about riches, caring more about other things, really become dull, letting those things creep in. It says other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty fold and sixty fold and a hundred fold. That's the kind of life that we're called to. We're called to bear fruit for Him. Now, how much fruit we bear really is ultimately up to God. But we, we have to examine ourselves. Are we, are we good soil? You see, the rain, in verse 7 and 8 of our passage of Hebrews, the rain fell on both the good soil and the soil that bore thorns. It fell on both. The rain fell on both. Both soils were cultivated by the Master. 
The responsibility, though, is with the soil, not with the one bringing the rain and cultivating it. The responsibility was with the soil. The change was dependent upon response. He talks about a kind of soil, a good soil who heard the word and accepted it or believed it and responded and they grow with bearing fruit. It's the evidence. It didn't cause the soil. It'd be silly. You don't think the crop caused the soil to be there, but the crop is the evidence of the fact that the soil is good. That the roots were dug down deep. And, but there's another type of soil in verse 8. And it's the, the person who's enlightened and immediately receives the word and may even receive it with joy. They, they taste the goodness of God, but it's only a taste. And they spit it out. They don't swallow the word and let it take root. They don't fully receive it and let it, let it sink in. It's a surface kind of belief. It doesn't go very deep because their hearts are ultimately still hard. As soon as persecution and tribulation arises, they immediately fall away. We all have known people like that. We all have friends and family in our past who have made a profession, have seemed to bear fruit and be excited and joyful, but then now they've walked away from that. We're called to warn because there's a danger if we're not bearing fruit. In verse 8 it says, If it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Just like in the parable that Jesus told, they're more enamored with the deceitfulness of riches. They're more overwhelmed by the cares of the world. They never really trust in Jesus alone. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've not really trusted in Him. Maybe you're still enamored with the deceitfulness of riches. Still thinking that things of the world can satisfy. Thinking that, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but I really need all these other things too to satisfy me. Trusting into G- in Jesus and entering into His rest, as we've heard about before in Hebrews, it's a resting, a trusting from our own works, our own abilities. It's more than just easy believism. It's, it's the kind of person who's not willing to give, give up Jesus for the world. Instead, the person who's, bears good fruit and says, you know, I, I'm willing to give up everything and count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. No, I don't get it all right. No, I don't get it all perfect. And I can't earn his favor. But I, I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to live for him. And I want him to get rid of the remaining sin that I have. And I'm trusting and resting in His work and His ability to do that. But if you, you've not done that, you're not willing to give up everything for Jesus and count everything loss, it says that these kinds of people are worthless and you're to be cursed. Jesus in Matthew 13, He gave us another parable of the weeds and the crops. And He talked about how the farmer will let the weeds grow up among the crops. But at harvest time, the weeds are gathered and burned. John 15, Jesus talked about hiding, abiding in Him. And if, and if anybody doesn't abide in Him, that He's thrown away like a branch that withers. And this withered branches, they're gathered and thrown into the fire to be burned. Their lack of fruit and their falling away were not the cause but they were the evidence that they were never really born again to begin with. And in 1 John two nineteen, 
John is helping the church understand this concept. And he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all are not of us. So what's the main idea of all this? What's the main point? What's the author really getting at? What's he driving at? What does he want us to come away with? He's wanting the reader. He's wanting the original reader. And by the Holy Spirit, he's wanting us to beware of falling away. Beware of falling away. Persevere. If you have believed the truth, persevere in the faith and bear fruit for God. Beware of falling away. Believe, persevere in the faith and bear fruit for God. And here's the question for all of us today. Maybe you're thinking, I really am a Christian. How do I apply these verses to my life? Well, all of us can soberly evaluate our current state. It's a good thing to come back and say, am I sure? Good, I'm sure. And, and make sure where we are. But let me caution you. Maybe maybe you evaluate. Maybe as you're hearing this verse this morning, don't confuse sin with apostasy. Don't confuse sinning with falling away. Don't confuse sin with deliberately turning away from Jesus. But if you are adrift, then pay attention. Let this waving of the arms, let these warning signs, these flashing lights, let it drive you back to the foot of the cross where your sins get this they're, they're completely forgiven and then you can receive God's amazing mercy and complete forgiveness maybe you're unsure maybe you're wrestling I'm not really sure here's the great news you don't have to wonder anymore you can turn to him you can repent and he says that He'll make you clean. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to make you clean, to cleanse you from your sins and to make you righteous in Him. You can be sure of where you are with the Lord now. Don't let your past confuse you if you're not sure whether your profession was genuine or not. I know when... when when I was younger, actually probably 15 years ago, I looked back and I'm like, I wasn't sure. I'm not sure. Was my profession when I was a child really genuine? I don't know. And that wigged me out. I thought, oh my gosh, what happens? If that wasn't genuine, then what am I now? And then I realized that, you know, that's really silly. Because I can be sure now. I don't, I don't, I don't have to worry about whether it was genuine in the past. I can know that I have a genuine profession of faith now and and to encourage you, I do know now that I've placed my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. You can know now. Don't let it confuse you. And who cares? And who cares what people think of you? Oh no, well people think I was a fake and a fraud and a hypocrite. So what if they do? You're forgiven for that. What's the worst that people could say about you? It's not even close to what the cross said you deserved. See, the cross says you deserve the punishment of God Almighty in an unending, unrelenting way. But the cross also said that Jesus took all the punishment that you deserve. So the worst things that anybody could say about you are actually not bad enough. And they've all been forgiven if you place your hope and faith in Jesus. 
It frees you from having to worry about, well, what will my family think if I tell them, you know what, I'm not sure I was really a Christian. It doesn't matter. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we respond to this passage? Don't spend too much time on overthinking it. It's good to have self-examination. That's what this passage is meant for. But avoid an unhealthy introspection. Don't keep looking at yourself. And by the way, you might be prone to this. There are many who have different personalities and backgrounds who, who are melancholy generally, who are, who are prone to being discouraged. If that's you, please realize you can come to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in your time of need. And you can experience no condemnation And you can trust God. You can't trust your own ability to believe, but you can trust God to keep you. God, I I can't believe good enough, but Lord, help my unbelief. I want to believe. And i got to trust that you'll honor that, God. I don't feel like I can hold on to you good enough. Well, here's the good news. Remember in 1 Peter, he holds on to you. He keeps you. His inheritance is unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who by Not your power, God's power are being guarded. That is good news. Self-examination, it should only lead you to repentance if necessary, then receiving his forgiveness, experiencing no condemnation or guilt, instead being completely confident. Why do you think a few verses earlier, he's urging us to come boldly before the throne of grace where we receive mercy and grace to help in time of need? You can become before the throne room of God where you really deserved once judgment and now receive grace. What an amazing thing. We deserve judgment and we go before the holy judge of all who knows all our stuff and knows we really deserved it. And he says, I've placed it all on my son and I want you to come not receive my judgment, receive my grace and mercy. We all sin. How can you respond? We all sin. We all fail. We're all feeble and weak. We we might feel like we're not bearing much fruit. Any good fruit, any desire to not fall away that you might have this morning, any desire to repent, to change, to follow Jesus and pursue God, those are evidences of fruit. Those are evidences of God's work in your life. So how can you respond? Seek to know Him. Forget everything else and say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I really want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to give all for Him. I want to give up riches. I want to take up my cross. No matter what people think of me, no matter what people say, I want to show Jesus with all that I am. What's important is you know the truth now, that you repented now, that you live for Jesus now, that you grow now, you want to forsake Him Forsake all and follow him. That what matters is that you can forget the past, forget your doubts, forget your fears and unbelief and look to our great prophet. It's the message of Hebrews. Look to our great prophet, our great priest, the son of God. He's taken all the wrath of God and punishment for sin. And he says, remember, he says he passed through the heavens and he stands in the throne room of God. He makes intercession for us. He presents us as righteous before God. Here's how you can respond. Make sure you're looking more at God, hoping more in God, and trusting more in God. 
Oh, the band, go ahead and come forward as we close. Another way we can respond is maybe you are aware of somebody you think might be drifting. We're a body. If we see one member hurting, we're meant to go and help that member. When one member hurts, we all hurt. If you see somebody who you think may be drifting, be humble. Remove the log from your own eye. Go in a spirit of gentleness and lovingly seek them and lovingly call them back to Jesus. If they respond, rejoice with them. If they don't, consider leading them gently to this passage in Hebrews. Telling them you're concerned about them. Warning them of the path they're on and then committing to praying for them and loving them continually. And then don't let up loving them. Lastly, I want to encourage you Dig deep. We're meant to build on the foundations we have. Last week we heard about the, the danger of, of being dull of hearing. This passage is meant to follow that so that we build. So we build on the foundations we've received. So that we might grow more passionate about Jesus I want us to grow more passionate as a church, not about the things and the cares of this world. Let us grow passionate about Jesus, about being His disciple. You know, our mission as a church, Hebrews helps us with that. We want to be passionate disciples of Jesus. We want to be growing as disciples, building on the foundation. And we want to be going and making disciples and warning others and saying, you need to follow Jesus. Count everything as loss and follow Him. Read and reread Hebrews and let it affect you. And may you see Jesus and have a passion for Him. Go ahead and stand and let's sing together.